0: This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 M U M U k one awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome everyone to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gerringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, uh, which is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and you'll hear us talking about them quite a bit today. Um, And they've got a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming, uh, which includes the really cool study that we'll be talking about today. And we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting-edge research and projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. If this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, please note that you can always find new episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org, And you can always get the scoop on this and other work that the center's doing by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter, which is easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. So I'm really excited to have both of our guests with us today. Uh, Because this gives us an opportunity to talk about a program that I've had kind of a soft spot for in my heart for quite some time, and that is the My Life program. And we'll get into the good work that they do here in in just a minute, uh, serving youth aging out of the foster care system. Uh, It's a really interesting approach to mentoring youth who are on the cusp of adulthood and often facing a sudden and, and maybe even perilous reduction in the support that they've gotten from that system and from others, um, and you know, are kind of figuring out how they're going to then move on with their young adult life. So I'm really looking forward to sharing uh, some great information and research about this program with our guests today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our two guests. Uh, first is Dr. Jennifer Blakesley, who is a research assistant professor in the School of Social Work at Portland State University. Her work is focused on intervention research projects for youth in foster care, as well as community-based projects uh, and evaluating kind of the outcomes of those programs in an effort to improve services. Uh, She also works on research to practice efforts to disseminate scholarship in ways that translate to real-world practice settings, which is what this podcast is all about. She also brings uh, an innovative social network perspective to her work and has done some really cool things analyzing kind of the interactions and dynamics between mentors and youth and the often large number of individuals who touch and influence and hopefully enhance that mentoring relationship. So I really feel like Jennifer is on the leading edge of a new generation of mentoring researchers who are asking some new questions. And really, bringing fresh perspectives. So I'm really happy to have you here for the first time on this podcast. So welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thanks, Mike. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Great. And our other guest today is someone who has really nurtured several folks that are part of this new wave of researchers, and is uh, well on his way to becoming, I think, the Yoda of the mentoring research community and offering his wise guidance to a a new generation. And he's our first repeat guest on the podcast. Uh, So clearly. Tom's got his fingers on the pulse of what's happening in this field. So Dr. Tom Keller is with us. Tom is the Duncan and Cindy Campbell professor for children, youth, and families with an emphasis on mentoring, also in the School of Social Work here at Portland State University. Uh, He serves as the director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Mentoring Research and is also the director and the brains behind the Summer Institute on Youth Mentoring, which is one of my favorite events every year in the mentoring space. His research focuses on the development and influence of youth mentoring relationships and strategies for improving youth mentoring programs. He is also the co-PI of the Build Exito Initiative, which is a major, really major, NIH-funded project to support undergraduates from traditionally underrepresented student populations in preparing for graduate studies in the health sciences. So welcome, Tom. It's great to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. So I want to start off uh, with you, Jennifer, just giving our audience a little bit of an understanding about this program that we're going to be talking about today, uh, which is my life. And I'm hoping that you can just tell our audience a little bit about this innovative model for supporting youth as they age out of the foster care system. So maybe just give our listeners a sense of how this program started and, and what it does and how it works.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the My Life mentoring model was developed by Tom and my research colleagues here at Portland State, uh, Lori Powers and Sarah Geenan about 10 years ago. And it was developed specifically to address the lack of self-determination that many young people who are aging out of foster care experience. So it's based on self-determination theory, which the theoretical concept of self-determination refers to a person's intrinsic motivation driven by universal needs for competence, autonomy, and relatedness. A slightly less formal definition is that self-determination is acting as the primary causal agent in one's life and making choices and decisions regarding one's quality of life. And then when they applied it to young people in foster care, Lori and Sarah defined it specifically as self-directed action to achieve personally valued goals. And that was partly based on earlier research that Lori had done with colleagues related to young people experiencing disabilities and and working on interventions to improve their self-determination. So Lori partnered with Sarah Geenan, who had an interest in young people aging out of foster care, and they wanted to apply the self-determination concept specifically to older foster youth. And that was for a couple of reasons. So first was that the majority of young people in foster care experience some kind of a disability when we broadly define that as including anything that would qualify a young person for special education services. So then when we say disability today, we're talking about it could be physical disability, intellectual, emotional, behavioral disability. It could be a learning disability. So anything that would would qualify them for special education services. And there's a really high rate of young people in foster care that have some kind of disability like that. And then second, they knew that many young people exiting foster care don't have a lot of voice or choice in the decisions that are impacting them. They're in a very unusual situation being in the foster care system and that having more self-determination would be especially important as they approached aging out of foster care when they would be moving into independence and making decisions on their own. So the My Life model that we're talking about today uh, was that we tested was a year long program, a mentoring program where young people in foster care ages 16 to 18 received mentoring by trained staff here at our research center and graduate level social work interns. Um, The the intervention team was closely supervised in working with young people who were participating in the mentoring group on developing youth driven relationships from the start, helping youth learn and apply self-determination skills in a way that gave them more ownership and investment in the decisions being made that affected them. So the model, the motto of the My Life model is, is one that's probably familiar to some of your listeners, nothing about me without me. Um, and that really underlines sort of everything that the My Life model is about. So coaching youth to identify goals that are important to them, to determine the steps to accomplish those goals, to problem solve obstacles and barriers and stresses that come up along the way. Uh, to negotiate and ask for support from adult allies when needed and then also to recognize and celebrate their own accomplishments, whether those are small or large as they come up. So the model the my life model to help youth develop these self-determination skills, the coaches follow a particular curriculum that guides them in helping youth to develop and use these metacognitive, self-determination skills. So, so the ability to develop skills to think about thinking as you're making decisions. And those skills support youth in being more self-determined in their everyday lives. So particular goals that are important to them that they set with the coach, but also just doing things like leading their own service team meetings and really taking a larger role in those meetings or simply improving relationships with foster parents, teachers, anyone else in their lives. So that said, the skill building piece is very much grounded in the development of a supportive mentoring relationship between the coach and the young person from the start. That is the foundation of the model. Um, coaches are there to provide support, to walk along youth, alongside youth as teachable moments come up, um, to help youth try on different skills as they're learning them in, in different settings. Starting with youth with baby steps, so maybe a goal at the, when they first start working together might be to learn how to ride the bus or to practice asking a caseworker for a bus pass. So, so these sort of small-scale goals and then celebrating the accomplishment and talking about what went well in, those, in, in developing those goals. So coaches build on these kinds of successful experiences from the start to show youth how self-determination can impact your quality of life. And lastly, the model also has a near-peer mentoring piece. So there are monthly workshops that are co-facilitated by young people who are slightly older and have had successful experiences as they age out of the foster care system so they can share lessons learned around around aging out, heading to college, managing challenging relationships while they're in care, stuff that the younger foster youth population is experiencing and they can learn from these near-peers.
0: Great. Thank you, Jennifer. That sounds like a wonderfully designed program with a lot of good supports. So I really like that self-determination aspect of it as well. And feel like that's something that uh, could we build into all mentoring, uh, not just mentoring for for these young people, but uh, appreciate kind of the depth of thought and the design of the program. I want to ask a little bit, I know that there have been some previous evaluations of my life that I, I don't think you had been directly involved in those. Um, and I'm hoping that you could kind of just quickly summarize, you know, what were the outcomes of those previous studies? And I feel like there was some pretty good evidence that the program, you know, was impactful when you and Tom then decided to to take on this new project. Is it, is that a good way of assessing it?
1: Yeah, definitely. So there were two smaller randomized control trials that had taken place when we originally conceived of this study. So. Um, The two prior studies researchers, the first one, researchers had demonstrated that the MyLife model um, for young people who received the mentoring compared to the control group, uh, the the mentored group showed greater gains on measures of self-determination, quality of life, transition planning, which is really important for system-involved youth. And independent living activities then plus they also saw that, that enhancing self-determination de- among these young people was specifically shown to mediate improvements in a bunch of measures of quality of life. So including things like social inclusion, community integration, and overall well-being. And then there was a second study that was an adaptation of My Life that was specifically tested um, and was more education-focused. So so it was tested with a slightly younger group of high schoolers who were in foster care and special education, and they had to focus on at least one education-related goal, and the mentoring program lasted for the duration of the academic year instead of a full year like the program we're talking about today. And in that test, they saw specific mentoring impacts on, again, self-determination skills, and but also engagement in educational planning, academic performance, post-secondary preparation, and also reduced anxiety and depression. So these two smaller studies had demonstrated that the, the, there was a lot of reason to, to believe that the model worked. And so then that morphed into the larger study that are, is what Tom and I are talking about today.
0: Thank you. And I, I want to bring you in here, Tom, to talk a little bit about how you wound up doing this particular project. Uh, you know, as we mentioned early on, you know, one of the unfortunate realities for youth aging out of the foster care system is this rough transition into adulthood and and independence. Uh, they're losing systems of support. And, you know, the research indicates that they're more likely to have a number of, ne- you know, kind of negative life experiences in their their young adulthood, Uh, And as Jennifer just outlined, it seems like my life has some good evidence and that it's well positioned to prevent or mitigate some of that. And on this project, you really found a good fit between kind of that early body of work and things that OJJDP, I think, is interested in now. So could you just talk a little bit about what you focused on in this study of my life and how that aligns with things that are perhaps relevant to those working in the justice, correctional systems, and, and policymakers in general?
2: Sure. As you noted, there tends to be a higher likelihood for youth exiting foster care to have some kind of involvement with the justice system. And there's a growing interest in these crossover youth intersecting in both the child welfare and uh, criminal justice systems. And it turns out that there were two large, rigorous, randomized controlled trials of the My Life project um, that had been funded by NIH and the Department of Education that were already in progress, and we saw that those studies provided a good opportunity to look at the potential for mentoring, this kind of mentoring, to help prevent justice system involvement among this population of youth. Uh, as Jennifer described, the My Life model focuses on building self determination and developing targeted skills that might help to prevent a range of negative outcomes in young adulthood, such as unemployment or homelessness. So we thought there might be be a potential for um, the program to make a difference also on criminal justice involvement, even though that was not a specific outcome that my life was designed to address. Uh, For example, the model targets skills for self-regulation, problem solving, stress management, those things that Jennifer mentioned. So the kind of general skills that might allow a young person to see constructive options in stressful moments so they can step back and think through things and you know avoid those those occasions when they might get involved in delinquency or other problems we recognize that the ongoing my life studies would allow us to address some other important gaps in the field of mentoring so there are very few studies that have examined whether mentoring has an impact on outcomes with high levels of policy interest such as actual involvement with the criminal justice system. And studies of mentoring programs rarely follow youth beyond their program participation to see whether any benefits of that mentoring are durable and sustained over time, particularly extending into the adulthood stage. So we wanted to take advantage of those two large My Life studies funded by other sponsors to explore the questions that were of interest to OJJDP. And one strategy was to merge the samples from those two studies to increase our overall sample size and the uh, statistical power that that gave us to investigate how participants with different risk profiles respond to the intervention and to try to tease out, you know, the effect of different program components. So, the... um, OJJDP funding that we received supported us in doing some additional in depth analyses to tease out, you know, for whom this worked best and what were the key um, parts of the intervention making a difference. Um, then, what we also did was add a, a follow up assessment, which extended into early adulthood to evaluate whether the mentoring had that in post intervention effect. The original studies had a follow-up one year after the, the, the mentoring had ended, and we were able to add um, another assessment period to capture the outcomes when the participants were 20 to 20 years, 21 years old. And because we added this new wave of assessment, we were able to include new indicators of criminal offending and justice system involvement to capture the effect of the mentoring on those specific outcomes. And finally, with the new focus on justice outcomes, we could conduct some cost-effectiveness analyses. So, in this way, our project met some stated priorities in the OJJDP RFP or request for uh, funding that we responded to. It said OJJTP is interested in augmenting or extending the follow-up period for mentoring participants in currently funded or previous mentoring research. So again, that's where we were able to capitalize on the, the, the studies that were already underway. And they wanted um, to, in those circumstances, enhance a study's analysis of the cost effectiveness of a mentoring strategy and allow for examination of outcomes into adulthood, including system involvement or incarceration. So we felt that we were able to um, address those priorities, by extending the the My Life studies and um, adding to them this focus on juvenile justice.
0: So thanks, Tom. It sounds like there was some really good alignment between kind of what OJJDP was hoping to learn and uh, and you know kind of what hadn't been studied at some level about My Life in terms of these these longer outcomes. I want to ask you about something in the research design here that that fascinates me, Um, both utilizing and then building on data that was collected on these other projects um, on the same program and and even the same participants, Um, but then following up later. We've had David Dubois and Carla Herrera on talking about their extremely long-term follow-up work with Big Brothers Big Sisters uh, participants decades later from their involvement in the program. Um, but your task here wasn't nearly as complicated. You know, you weren't looking that far out in terms of when these young people were in the program. Uh, but you still had to make sense of kind of this this older data, data that you actually probably didn't collect yourselves, and then find these pretty mobile young adults. Right? There's a lot of uh, mobility, I would assume, for young people that have just aged out of foster care and are are starting their their young adulthood. Um, and collect more data from them with the assessment you just mentioned. So, can you talk a little bit about the benefits of using other data from other projects, and then you know the challenges that you faced in in doing that? Sure. As we noted in the
2: RFP, OJJDP realized that it's efficient to build on the investment of other funders who support these other studies of mentoring, and um, NIH and the Department of Education had each put in close to $3 million for these two separate studies of the MyLife program that were already in progress. And um, then we were able to come in with the OJJDB funding to combine the samples and add that additional assessment in adulthood. And we were fortunate in a few ways in our effort to do this. Um, First of all, the MyLife studies that were already underway, were conducted by our colleagues here at Portland State University, um, Lori Powers and Sarah Geenan, who Jennifer mentioned, and we know them well, we've worked with them. So they were sort of winding down their their projects and we saw the opportunity to keep them going and extend a, a little longer. So um, we you know, were able to work with them in devising this, this extension that we conducted. The other thing is that those two studies of the My Life model um, that had been funded by two separate agencies actually were very similar studies in terms of the research procedures. Um, the main distinctions between those studies involved the populations of foster youth that were participating. One of the studies uh, f- exclusively recruited youth who were receiving special education services as a proxy for disability. While the other study had a mix of youth with and without disabilities in the foster care system. Because, as Jennifer mentioned, the majority of youth in foster care do qualify for special education status, including those who may have emotional or behavioral health challenges related to trauma, uh, we didn't see a drawback to combining these two samples. And it, you know, meant that we had a somewhat higher. Uh, representation of youth with disabilities, but you know, that that does sort of reflect the, the population anyway. So second, we had great timing because the two studies were still underway when we proposed our extension. So um, they had not actually uh, completed their contact with the participants. They still had a final scheduled assessment with the participants. So, we use that as an opportunity to ask the youth at that time if they would be willing to do a fourth assessment a year later, and that would be our additional um, survey with them. And the the vast majority of the youth said that they would be happy to continue their participation. Um, There were a few that we had already missed by the time we got our project up and running um, that had already completed their final assessment in the other projects, but Even with those, we had relatively recent contact information, and we were able to go back and contact them and enroll most of them to be in our follow-up sample as well. So we were able to combine these two large samples into our follow-up study, and we were able to add the new data collection specifically to focus on those criminal justice outcomes, which had not been um, asked about in the original studies.
0: Great. Thanks, Tom. And it sounds like in this instance, this sounds like almost an idealized way of building on other uh, research projects, right? And that the two folks running those were folks at your school. And so you're able to kind of communicate with them and, and, you know, really work collaboratively with them. And then also just sounds like just the timing of it was also, you know, really uh, accessible and, and the young people were kind of right there and willing to keep, keep going in terms of filling out, um the assessments that you needed for for this piece. So that's that's a really cool way and and you know good good planning on all of that So I appreciate both of you kind of walking us through the background of the program and what you were doing with this study and and I'm sure our audience is like, well what did they find? So <laughs> let's get to the findings. And I know You know, the biggest ones you were looking for here were related to criminal offending and and kind of what individual factors uh, or levels of risk maybe played into those outcomes. And in looking through the report that you've put out, I feel like there's some really promising news here on that front. And so, Jennifer, I'm hoping you can kind of walk our audience through what you found.
1: Yeah, yeah. So overall, our analysis did show that the mentored versus controlled groups had different criminal justice-related outcomes at the two-year post-intervention follow-up. So first, there was a trend-level intervention effect on criminal justice involvement overall. So this was any self-reported trouble with the law in the prior year, including any arrests, convictions, or days incarcerated or on probation. And we found that about 11% of the mentored group reported any criminal justice system involvement, compared to about 19% of the control group. More specifically, we saw overall trends in whether participants had spent any days incarcerated in jail or prison in the prior year. So here we had 8% of the control group having at least one day incarcerated in the prior year compared to only 1% of the mentored group. We also saw a pattern of group differences for having been on probation or parole in the prior year or whether they had any arrests or convictions for various crimes, but these were not statistically significant for the overall sample. Next, we looked at self-reported delinquent activities. So that was them reporting whether they had been involved in a range of of various criminal behaviors, so stealing something or selling drugs. Um, And we also measured self-reported exposure to community violence, so whether they had witnessed or been a victim of community violence. And in both cases, we used validated scales that have been used in other studies. For these two scales, we didn't see any intervention group differences, but both of the scales were associated with justice system involvement itself. So in other words, mentoring was not statistically associated with participants giving us um, different answers on whether they had been involved in delinquency or community violence, but both of those measures were, were associated with whether they had actually had criminal justice consequences in the prior year.
0: Well, thank you, Jennifer. I mean, it sounds like you know good news that uh, there were some differences between the young people who'd went through the program and and those uh, who did not. Um, but I know that there were some more nuanced findings, and I am a big fan of kind of subgroup findings and and learning a little bit more about you know who the program is working for. We wouldn't expect every program to work for every young person in it equally. Um, but you know, we can learn a lot by looking at who it's working best for and and who might you know in fact benefit from some other program or some other intervention. So I know that you found that for some groups this program was really impactful, um, but when considering some other you know kind of demographic factors, not so much. So could you maybe unpack a little bit of that for our audience as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it does get pretty interesting when we start to look at the subgroups so, Overall, most of the participants who reported criminal justice involvement were males. Uh, So when we look at the subgroups, all of the trend level statistical findings I mentioned a moment ago either become more pronounced or reach more traditional statistical significance when we're looking at males specifically. So I mentioned that 11% of the mentored group had any past year criminal justice involvement compared to 19% of the control group. So when you look at males specifically, this jumps to 29% for the control group compared to only 7% of the mentored group. So four times as many males in the control group had criminal justice system involvement compared to the group that had been mentored two to three years prior with the MyLife program. So a much stronger effect of mentoring for males compared to females. And this is because partly because females were just much less likely to be justice involved at age 20 to 21, and so we saw a low rate that was about the same for the for the two intervention groups. So next, we looked at disability indicators, partly because the My Life model is built to accommodate a range of potential challenges related to disability that young people might might be experiencing. So first, we looked at whether they received any special education services at all. So again, our broad proxy indicator for disability. Uh, because to receive special education services, there would have been, had to have been some kind of diagnosis at some point. Uh, again, including anything from physical to mental health to a learning disability, and we did not see any patterns um, for that. In for that those subgroups overall, so whether they had special education status or not, so whether youth had any disability did not seem to influence whether mentoring was effective for r- reducing the criminal justice outcomes in young adulthood. However. We also looked specifically at youth who were receiving developmental disability services. So we knew from the original enrollment period whether prior to mentoring, youth who were also receiving developmental disability services in addition to being in foster care, and we can. We can make an assumption that that for them to also be receiving uh, an additional developmental disability case manager through the state, that there's a higher level of need for that subgroup of youth who are also receiving both of those services related to foster care and disability. And so what we found was that youth who were receiving developmental disability services had about a third of the rate of criminal justice involvement in young adulthood compared to those who did not receive developmental disability at that earlier age when they participated in the intervention. So then when we compared the intervention groups, we only saw a mentoring effect for those who did not receive developmental disability services where 24% of the control group had criminal justice involvement compared to 11% of the mentoring group. So similar to the findings from females versus males, we think that the lower rate of criminal justice involvement among young people who had developmental disability services at the time of mentoring kind of obscures any intervention effect. So when we look just at the subgroup of youth who did not have those services, it increases the mentoring effect for that group, and we do see an impact on criminal justice outcomes. And then lastly, we looked at differences between those who had baseline delinquency prior to intervention. So so at the time they were enrolled in the program, they were asked whether they had had any trouble with the law at that time point. And then we also asked whether they had a history of running away. And we found what seems to be a preventative effect for young people who had not yet had any delinquency involvement at the time of mentoring. So the subgroup of youth who had already been in trouble with the law prior to intervention had a 25% rate of criminal justice involvement at follow-up compared to the overall average of 15% for the whole sample. And we didn't see any differences between those who were mentored and those who who were not for the subgroup of youth who had prior delinquency. But we did see an effect for youth who had no prior delinquency, they were less likely to have been incarcerated at follow-up. So none of the mentored youth who had no prior delinquency reported incarceration at follow-up, so in young adulthood, compared to 9% of the control group, so 0% to 9%. Uh, This suggests that the mentoring effect is more pronounced when it's preventative in terms of reducing criminal involvement among young people who had no delinquency when they started the mentoring program.
0: Well, thank you, Jennifer. And, you know, that last finding around uh, perhaps a a bit more preventative aspect of the program than, you know, being effective for young people who'd already kind of been involved with criminality and and the juvenile justice system, you know, that fits in with other research we've talked about on this podcast. Ed Latessa was on uh, a few episodes back talking about uh, some work he's done, you know, really looking at mentoring for young people that already have some deeper criminal justice involvement. And, you know, he really felt that, you know, the sweet spot for mentoring was in that initial prevention that once young people kind of got deeper into that, that they needed mentoring plus a whole bunch of other things that might Give them a little bit more, you know, kind of holistic and well-rounded support, including you know clinical things and and whatnot. So, you know, I'm I'm happy. I mean, anything, anytime you can have zero (laughs) percent offending um, at the long-term follow-up, that's that's good news for anyone working in kind of criminal justice and in the policy field. So, really good findings there. Uh, I mentioned it earlier in in our questions here, and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about my favorite aspect of the program, which is that self determination approach. Was there anything in your results here that pointed to the value of that particular approach with these young people? The you know nothing about me without me. Uh, is there a quantifiable benefit when mentors really put the goals, the needs, the strengths of the mentee first and take a back seat somewhat and in service of what's relevant to that young person? Did you find anything around that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, the model is all about being youth-driven. And that may mean supporting youth in goals that initially seem maybe unrealistic or silly. So anybody who's ever worked with young people in a mentoring capacity knows that lots of times youth have initially have a goal of being a famous athlete in NFL or NBA um, or a famous singer or they want to be a billionaire. And that's when we really apply the My Life curriculum to try to uncover the smaller steps along the way, which often leads to a more immediate goal that's more meaningful for the young person. So um, are, they, are they saying they want to be a famous athlete because really they want to get better at playing basketball and they want more, more chances to be able to play basketball or do they want to be inquired, but their foster parent didn't want to pay the extracurricular fee, the fees, so they're feeling frustrated around that? Or are they frustrated that they don't have any spending money, and so they're really just ready to get a part-time job, and they don't know where to start? So really applying the curriculum to uncover a, a more immediate and meaningful goal that the coach and the young person could start working on right away. And then also, the My Life model is built to account for system involvement. It was developed for young people in foster care, but we're hoping to test it in the future with youth and juvenile justice and mental health care systems. So with system involvement, we know that youth have a service team of some kind. So maybe they have a caseworker that they do or don't get along with, or maybe it's their fourth or fifth caseworker. They may be placed with a foster parent they're close to, or maybe not that close to, or maybe they're in group care with you know rotating staff members and they're not having a chance to build relationships. Um, They may also have a life skills trainer on their team. They may have various other case managers on their team. So this service team may call a meeting to decide what comes next for the young person. So where they'll live, where they'll go to school, who in their family they can spend time with or not, or even whether they're allowed to participate in a mentoring program. And often youth aren't in that room. So maybe they're not invited or maybe they don't go because they don't see what difference it would make for them to show up because they've had bad experiences at these meetings in the past. Or maybe they're not sure how to identify things that are important to them or express what's important to them and how they want to be supported by their team. So that's what the My Life model is getting at. It's facilitating typical youth development related to self-determination, but in a structured and time-intensive way that accounts for the unusual obstacles faced by many young people with system involvement. And then that's where we see the clearest impact over time on our validated measures of self-determination, so we use a few different measures that have been used in other studies. And then MyLife also does an in-depth, comprehensive pre-post interview with young people about where they're asked to identify goals, to narrow down steps, to name accomplishments, or describe stress management strategies and and who they go to for support when needed. And we see a clear difference in every MyLife study so far. In the mentored group, being able to articulate um, these these self determination skills at follow up, and then we see that those that self determination is strongly mediates and moderates other outcomes in the long term.
0: Thanks, Jen, and and once again, I just I'm such a big fan of that approach, and I feel like there's a lot there practice wise that other mentoring programs could learn from. So I really appreciate you kind of articulating. The value that that has uh, for these young people. And I I think, like I said before, I think that extends to other programs and other groups of young people. Those are just incredibly valuable skills that a mentor can help bring out for a young person. So I want to transition here and and bring you back in, Tom, to talk a little bit about one of the aspects of the study that is probably of most interest to kind of policy folks and funders you guys did the daunting and rather complicated step of a return on investment analysis of the program and I've seen a lot of these studies you know rois return on investment studies over the years and rois always seem like more art than science right It's always kind of mystical how they <laughs> calculate cost and calculate you know benefit. Um, but yours is really clear and to the point and I, I really enjoyed reading that section of your, report so i'm hoping you can tell our listeners and you know perhaps by extension some some policy folks so those in charge of funding decisions you know what you found in terms of the monetary value of the program to society and on the criminal justice system in particular
2: Well, we used our own mystical process um, as well. Um, As you pointed out, cost-effectiveness and cost-benefit analyses tend to be very tricky, and they depend heavily on the approach used, and especially on the assumptions that are made that go into the models. Um, One of the most important considerations in our case was that we had a randomized trial, so that true experiment comparing the participants in my life to a control group that gave us the differences on outcomes that we could actually attribute to participation in the My Life program. So that gives us a solid foundation um, for the analysis. And we also had very good implementation data in terms of the record keeping on contact hours, program expenses, and things like that, the, the costs that go into delivering My Life. So our uh, cost analysis began with an estimation of those program costs overall and per youth for you know, a weekly paid mentoring program the grounded in this theory of change for uh, increasing self-determination. So the documented direct service time for my life intervention uh, indicated an average of just over a hundred hours of youth programming time, both direct service and indirect support um, that the mentor was involved in over the course of one year for each participant. So, we could use that as a foundation for um, calculating costs, using the the salaries for the coaches, uh, the mentors, um, and the other costs that go into delivering the program, you know, travel and uh, activity costs. And so we we boiled that down to um, a marginal cost of about $3,150 to serve each additional youth for one year when the, the program is established and um, you're not Accounting for all of the infrastructure involved in the program. So that's just like if you have, you know, 49 uh, youth participating, what does it cost you to add just one more youth into that mix? But when you look at all of those other things that are involved, like, you know, a, a project supervisor and somebody to coordinate events and activities and other. Uh, program costs and uh, l- look at you know the total expenses um, and the number of youth served that comes out to uh, a higher per youth amount of about eight thousand per year. Um, so again, this is a very um, structured intensive program with a lot of staffing. So so we you know feel pretty good about those. Cost estimates. Um, the the trickier part is determining the you know the benefits. So um, we we first tried to determine the program cost for achieving certain justice system outcomes. For example, we could see what effect the program had on days in jails for the participants um, in my life versus the control group. So um, as Jennifer pointed out, that was a An outcome where we saw a statistically significant difference and many more uh, days in jail for the control group. And our cost effectiveness analysis found that delivering the intervention cost approximately $386 for every avoided day in jail for the one year that we assessed those outcomes. So you know we broke that out that kind of cost effectiveness. What does it cost you to achieve a certain outcome for a few of those different justice outcomes? Then you know the cost benefit analysis um, or the actual return on investment is is quite a bit more difficult for a few reasons. First, the costs in this case, are known and are fixed because the My Life program is a one-year intervention. And so it was delivered and that's passed and it's all done and we know how much that amounted to. However, the the savings or the benefits in terms of justice system costs that were avoided could go on for years and years and years because, again, the participants are only in their late teens. And, um, you know, if the program is is really setting them on a different course it could affect costs in the justice system for years and years into adulthood so we only have data from one year if to use in our in our calculations furthermore the program costs could lead to benefits in many domains other than justice system involvement you know it could have a, an effect on their educational outcomes, whether they finish high school, whether they go on to college, their employment, um, and that translates into taxes and other things. So again, focusing just on the justice system um, is, is being conservative, even though some things like incarceration are big ticket items. Finally, the return on investment can depend upon the youth we're talking about. So as Jennifer just mentioned, we saw much more dramatic effects for the boys versus the girls. So, you know, should we calculate the benefits based on serving everybody in this study or, you know, knowing in the future that that boys will maybe get the most benefit if you focus the program just on there, your cost benefit changes. So just using the whole sample and the, the one outcome like days of incarceration for that one year that we had, um, we estimate that the program costs have a payback period of, of less than five years. So, um, just on that one outcome, um, you get your, your money back in, in five years. If, if our one year outcome assessment is, is a good, a good estimate of what it will look like in the future.
0: Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate that. And, you know, certainly, um, putting a dollar amount on what it costs, you know, to achieve a hard outcome, like one less day in jail, I think is incredibly helpful for policymakers and and funders. And, you know, I'm a big fan of these analyses that try and just simply say, well, what does it cost to break even with the program? And, and what would it take to, you know, what's the time period where this program would have kind of paid for its own startup in terms of societal benefit? And, you know, I, I don't blame you for kind of limiting you know, how far into the future you were looking, I've seen ROIs that try and extrapolate out, you know, estimated lifetime taxes paid by people, you know, things like that. And, you know, it seems like you tried to to do an analysis here that was a little simpler and and more grounded in kind of the information you had to work with. So I appreciate that. I want to ask a quick follow-up, you know, around why you felt compelled to do an ROI on this. And you know, I, I think a lot of times programs enter into that in the hopes that they can convince, you know, folks that this is worth, you know, paying for and funding uh, with more definitive proof. So what, kind of what motivated you to, to do an ROI here? And then what advice would you have for other programs or researchers who want to undertake something similar and, and do an ROI on their program? Yeah.
2: So as I mentioned earlier, when I referenced the RFP from OJJDP, they they did list um, this kind of cost effectiveness analysis as one of their priorities. So we thought that att- attempting this would would help us have a more competitive application, and we you know that was one consideration. But but more importantly, we knew that as a paid mentoring model, um, My Life represents um, you know a, a more cost intensive uh, larger investment um, in a youth mentoring approach. But we feel that's really important given the population of youth being served. And you know these are youth that have been in the foster care system and Jennifer highlighted some of the challenges special challenges that they faced and um, again, other research has shown they have a, a higher risk of of criminal justice involvement. So, we think in this particular instance, when we've got a more expensive program for a special population, it's really um, important to see whether the program can be justified on those grounds. That um, you know that in- investment can lead to a real difference on outcomes that have important personal and social consequences, such as incarceration. So we also knew that you know the 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 studies that had been started by Laurie Powers and Sarah Geenan, the the ones we were building on, had had really paid a lot of attention to uh, in, intervention fidelity, so they had really good records on the service hours and the costs involved. So we had a, a good basis for doing this kind of study. Our you know our research suggests that this kind of structured mentoring program um, is a viable approach to prevent justice system involvement in early adulthood and. That targeting mentoring programs for youth with the most challenging personal, personal and environmental circumstances, you know, can can require a, a higher level of program fidelity and program investment to achieve these outcomes. This program has a a, a really clear model, curriculum, strategy, approach, um, high level of training and supervision for the mentors, a lot of infrastructure, more so than you'd see in a typical volunteer-based mentoring program. But again, uh, there's there's a, a justification for that, right? And because of what we're trying to accomplish... You know, the, the findings that Jennifer shared indicate that it, it does have an effect and we are seeing some important outcomes like uh, avoidance of time in jail and um, less involvement in the cri- criminal justice system. So, um, again, our cost effectiveness analysis does suggest that the financial benefits of the program are, are likely to outweigh the costs and especially as those benefits accrue over time.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate you kind of talking about why you did this and and why it's important to take this look at uh, the true costs of of a program and and frankly, what you found here in terms of that overall cost, you know, aligns pretty well with research I've done at Mentor from our National Program survey, kind of looking at, you know, for programs serving a, a high percentage of youth with with real serious needs, you know, that cost per match shoots up <laughs> in terms of dollar amount pretty pretty rapidly. And I think one of the worst things that we can do as a field is kind of underfund those types of matches that are really trying to address serious problems. And because I, I think you're right, it costs more money up front to do that. But you also then get these very large, you know, financial benefits for society on the back end. So I appreciate you kind of walking our audience through that a little bit. Um, and to both of you, I really appreciate you talking to our, our listeners today about my life and kind of how it does what it does and and what you found here here in terms of the the longer term impact of that for for young people so i'm really hopeful that this uh this session brings more fans to the program and perhaps more visibility and and funding because i i just think that it's really hitting the mark for a group of young people that really need this level of support and really appreciate you joining us today to talk about it you know, just please remember everyone that uh, we've got several more episodes of this series to release in the fall here. So keep an eye on the NMRC website for new recordings. And as always, if you want to make some improvements in your program, or if you need help with the challenge that your staff is facing or that your mentors are facing, the National Mentoring Resource Center does offer free technical assistance and consultation nationwide. All you need to do is request it through that NMRC website and we'll get you the expertise that you need. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thank you again for joining us. And remember, research may seem definitive, but I truly think we decide what's meaningful in this work together through dialogue like this and through open hearts and minds. So thank you, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.